Welcome to the Cynic Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to the tectonic shifts underway as China rolls out what we call the Red New Deal. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Today on Seneca, I am delighted to welcome William Klein, a veteran diplomat who served as Minister Counselor for Political Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, and then as Acting Deputy Chief of Mission there from 2019 until just six months ago. Bill joins me from Berlin, where he's just moved to begin a new chapter after retiring from the State Department. Bill has had a long and fascinating career in the Foreign Service. He joined the State Department in 2000 after a career as an investment banker, and his first posting was, interestingly enough, uh, given what's dominating the headlines today, to Kiev in Ukraine. He was posted to Ukraine, indeed, not once but twice, and we'll have to ask him to weigh in on the latest. Uh, he's also been posted to Tel Aviv, to Mumbai, to the China and Mongolia desk at State in D.C., and then at AIT in Taipei before going to Beijing in 2016, where he spent the next five years. Today, we'll focus on his time in Beijing, which was eventful enough after all, I mean, if you think about all that transpired in U.S.-China relations uh, between the summer of 2016 and this last summer, it just kind of boggles the mind. Time permitting, we'll ask about all the major events to which Bill not only had a front row seat, but was actively involved in, in shaping events. Bill Klein, welcome to Seneca. Well, thank you, Kaiser. It's an honor and a pleasure. Well, the pleasure is all, all entirely mine, and I'm really excited to, t to talk to you about your storied career. Uh, let's start. Let's go all the way back, actually, to 2009 when you were first assigned to the Office of, of Chinese and Mongolian Affairs. On this program, I mean, I've talked to hundreds of individuals, and there's almost no one I've ever spoken with who, who hasn't identified that period, basically from the financial crisis in 2008, the first couple of years of the Obama presidency, as, as something of an inflection point, or a real change in the way that Beijing viewed the U.S. and the beginning of not only a more assertive Chinese foreign policy, but also a, a more illiberal domestic policy. D did you sense something was happening then, or was this something that maybe only became more clear in hindsight? No, absolutely. You know, um, when the Obama administration came into office, um, it talked about um, establishing a positive, cooperative, and comprehensive relationship with China. I think that was the term mm -hmm. that we used. At the same time, um, it was already very not noticeable that the uh, strategic distrust at the heart of the relationship um, and the strategic competition that uh, ultimately does drive the relationship was having a greater and greater influence on Chinese thinking. Clearly, China had emerged from the um, financial crisis with somewhat more self-confidence. Mm -hmm. So although engagement was still at the heart of the bilateral relationship and the Obama administration did engage um, the Chinese leadership across the board, although we continued to look for areas of, to expand areas of cooperation, and we talked about that, you know, um, expanding areas of cooperation, um, mm -hmm. managing areas of competition and distrust it was already clear that um, it, it was a, a competition and that strategic distrust was, was driving the relationship. Let, let's jump forward a little bit in time to the years 2014 through 2016 when you were at AIT, which is, you know, the de facto embassy really of, in Taipei. Uh, that must have been a very interesting time indeed. And actually, you know, that happens to have been the period where I was spending an awful lot of time in Taipei. Uh, my father was, was in the hospital at that point and convalescing there. Uh, but more to the point, it was the period immediately after the Sunflower Movement, uh, and you were there all the way up through the election in which Tsai Ing-wen defeated Ma Ying-jeou. Um, you must have left Taipei at just about the time that Ma was leaving office in 2016. So w when you think back to that period, did you have any inkling, any sense that cross-straits ties and the U.S. difficulties over the Taiwan question with China would be heading toward what we have right now? Uh, or did this catch you by surprise? I mean, Tsai 
had been elected, but she was never, I think the people who really understand the situation, she was never the radical disruptor that some people in Beijing uh, or or in, indeed in the KMT painted her to be or imagined her to be, right? And 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 you couldn't have foreseen things like uh, the Hong Kong protests of 2019, 2020, or, or, or Trump or Pompeo, right? So what did the trajectory of U.S.-Taiwan-China relations look like in that period, 2014, 2016? Well, I think, um, first of all, by 2014, Kaiser, um, it was already fairly clear that uh, Ma Ying-jeou's policy of engagement um, had maxed itself out, that mm. what he had um, tried to uh, accomplish in the relationship um, had finite limits. I think, you know, after he came into office and established um, the, this path of engagement with China, and we saw this um, dramatic increase in um, cross-strait ties and cross-strait engagement, I think that he hoped that that would go into political conversations in a manner consistent with Taiwan's interests, which are to mm-hmm. um, maintain its de facto autonomy, maintain its way of government, and maintain um, its rule of law and its freedoms and its unfettered connections with the outside world. By 2014, it was already clear that that strategy had, had reached its, its limits. Not only was it clear that the Chinese were not willing to go any further or, or that um, they would use political conversations to take this dialogue in a direction inconsistent with China, uh, Taiwan's interests, but also within Taiwan itself, that the support for Ma Ying-jeou's approach had reached its limits. I think Ma did a um, bad job of explaining to Taiwan voters what exactly his intentions were. I think they distrusted him and the KMT. And that coupled with um, the dissatisfaction um, over his overall governance, you know, gave this opening for Tsai Ing-wen, who very, very astutely understood um, where t- Taiwan public opinion was, and then, then used that to hers and to the DPP's advantage. Mm, mm-hmm. The Sunflower Movement, you know, was a specific reaction to this planned cross-strait agreement and services. There too, I think people felt that went that was just a bridge too far. And Ma ying ultimately never really understood that and failed then to pivot or to find an alternative way out um, that would allow the KMT to maintain, uh, maintain control. Um, obviously, nobody could have foreseen um, what would have happened with Hong Kong or with um, the U.S.-China relationship. Um, but it was clear that um, as uh, Tsai Ing-wen came into office, that cross-strait relations um, would get um, far rockier. Mm-hmm. I think she, she truly tried to, to square the circle on the 92 consensus and the idea of one China. Obviously, um, she was unwilling to um, explicitly embrace uh, the 92 consensus and the connotation of one China. She did, however, attempt through her words and her deeds before taking power and after she became president to give the Chinese space to read into what she was saying, a tacit acceptance of the connotation of one China or the 92 consensus. Mm -hmm. But Beijing wasn't going to buy that at all. They did not trust her. And they never did trust her. And so this led then to the, to the impasse and then to the uh, de- deterioration of that cross-strait relationship that we're experiencing until today. You left Taiwan and took up your post in Beijing as Minister Counselor for Political Affairs in the summer of 2016. And, and you mentioned to me when we spoke earlier that you actually worked the G20 meeting in Hangzhou in September of that year. Uh, it's unfortunate that if you ask most people about what they might remember concerning U.S.-China relations coming out of that meeting, they'll probably, if they remember anything, they'll 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 recall the whole Obama arrival and the supposed snub that he received, having to you know, deplane ignominiously out the the rear of the plane. At least that's how the press reported it. But can you, you know, having been there on the ground, can you set the record straight? What was going on actually with the optics around Hangzhou? And uh, what was really, what really did come out of that meeting? What should we remember from G20? Yeah, with respect to the specific example, you cite Kaiser about the president getting off the plane. You know, I think people forget that, you know, choreographing a presidential visit, you know, has a thousand moving parts. Even with the most flexible and open-minded and friendly of U.S. partners, choreographing a, a presidential visit is a heavy lift and all sorts of things can and do go wrong. Right. And then, um, you know, in China, um, you know, China being China, things happen. That was a, in my view, um, from my perspective, was not an intentional snub by the Chinese. I do not believe that the Chinese had an interest in doing that to the president. Um, I think this was a manner of miscommunication on the Chinese side and a manner of of the chain of command um, either being ignored 
or forgotten on the Chinese side or, and just crappy and poor execution on the Chinese side. Mm-hmm. Not a deliberate snub then. So what should we take away from the G20 conference in, in Hangzhou? Yeah, from my perspective, it was quite interesting. You know, I had worked the U.S.-China relationship from Washington until 2012, and then I um, disappeared off into Taipei, as it were, you know, where you have a very, very different type of relationship. So I came straight from um, Taipei to, to, to Beijing in the summer of 2016 to um, work um, that, um, the, the, the visit in Hangzhou, and I was there in Hangzhou. And, and what struck me is just how much the relationship had changed. First of all, the Chinese had become even more self-confident and more assertive, I would say, in their engagement. Secondly, I think the relationship became, it became somewhat more contentious. The conversations, I think, were not as easy. And also, you know, the modes of engagement had also um, become um, far more um, complex. Um, you may recall that we used to do joint statements whenever we had a presidential summit. By that time, that had long gone, right? Um, I think that um, right. you know the, the, the Obama administration had um, realized um, that it's just not worth it uh, trying to find common ground um, with the Chinese on these issues. And so what resulted- The last one was probably 2014 when, when the uh, visa situation was announced and all that. So the last kind of very positive one. And then yeah. that was you know ahead of Paris, right? So- there was the, the climate announcement as well. Yeah. And then, um, so, you know, we got these uh, coordinated statements. So we worked a long time to basically coordinate statements um, with the Chinese. And the philosophy being is that whatever we say would not give the other side any grounds to, to contradict what we had said. That, so that just showed that the management of the relationship had become more difficult. And, um, and I think this is because the and the competition and the mistrust at the heart of the relationship were driving the relationship um, more and more. And this, this process certainly accelerated over all of the years that I was in Taipei. Mm-hmm. And, and over the years that you were in Beijing. And then, of course, then that, um, you yeah. know, you can just extrapolate. And then obviously after 2017, this entire process accelerated. And we will do the blow by blow uh, through those years as well, as, as grim as it is. By the time, of course, that, that you arrived, uh, the primaries had already been over for months. And we were deep into the presidential race. From your perch in Beijing, it must have been fascinating to watch your Chinese counterparts take in that race. What can you tell us about their expectations, about their preferences, and their immediate reactions to the race's eventual outcome in November? Well, first of all, you know, it was already apparent in the summer of 2016 that the new incoming U.S. administration, let me say the, uh, the Clinton administration, because we all knew in the summer of 2016 that Hillary Clinton would be the next president. Um, uh-huh. It was already clear, Kaiser, that the new U.S. administration was going to take a more assertive approach to the bilateral relationship. It was, um, I think most people had a sort of a consensus about who the people would be in the Clinton administration who um, would be running the, the China policy, and these, these were well-known China experts. Uh, most of them had served in the um, uh, Obama administration. Mm-hmm. So um, it, I think this was clear on our side. The Chinese had also got the message. Um, so the Chinese, I, I think, were also expecting a, a more assertive U.S. policy on behalf of, uh, you know, coming from the new administration. Sure. Obviously, they, like everybody else, was deeply surprised um, by uh, Donald Trump's victory. And I think it took a long time for them um, to wrap their heads around the fact about, you know, who is he and what are his intentions with respect to China? Well, let's, let's talk about some of the early efforts by Beijing's America watchers as it were, and the Chinese leadership to get their heads around this Trump presidency. I mean, it seemed to me that they were, there were plenty of people in Beijing who believed they, you know, they, they had Trump's number. They knew how to, to stroke his ego, grant some trademarks to his daughter, give some business to Jared's family, the flatter Trump himself, and then everything would be just sort of peachy. Is that far off the mark? Is that that's pretty much how they saw things initially? I, I think there were different views, Kaiser, simply because people did not know who Donald Trump mm-hmm. was. Nobody had ever on the Chinese side had ever actually developed a relationship with him or with many of the people that came into his administration. So there were right. various views in China. Um, and there was a debate in China about what the proper approach should be. Indeed, the view that you just cited um, was very widespread in Chinese policymaking circles that um, Donald Trump was a deal maker. According to this logic from the Chinese logic, this would be good for China because you could strike deals with this guy. Right. He himself did not appear to be an ideologue. 
um, appeared to be someone who was very, very pragmatic. Indeed, I think there is a Chinese view that the man was also sufficiently vain that you could advance Chinese interests um, by, by stroking his ego. Mm-hmm. All of that um, absolutely existed. At the same time, there were other voices citing the fact that he was bringing into his administration some people who did have a decidedly anti-China approach, um, at least um, um, in the past. And uh, these people warned, saying, be careful, because whatever Donald Trump may be thinking, ideologues, anti-communist and anti-Chinese ideologues um, potentially can hijack the U.S.-China relationship. And then there is a third group that said, nobody knows what Donald Trump is going to do. Um, perhaps Donald Trump doesn't know what Donald Trump is going to do. And this, from a Chinese perspective, is bad because what China needs is a stable and predictable relationship with the United States and a unpredictable and a uh, president, um, a unstable relationship is bad for China. So to put it mildly, I think views about Donald Trump were all over the map yeah. um, at the beginning of 2017. And what about within the embassy itself? What was the mood like? Well, um, I, I think, you know, you can, you know, all of us, when we joined the Foreign Service, right, um, signed, a, uh, signed a commitment that we would, you know, support the policies of the democratically elected administration in Washington when we executed our jobs, irrespective of our personal um, political views. Yeah. Um, having said that, um, I, uh, I, I don't think it would be a surprise that probably a majority of Foreign Service officers um, around the world, including those that worked in Beijing, were not only surprised by Donald Trump's victory, like the rest of us, but also saw that victory with a tremendous amount of consternation. Yeah. You said that the desire was for you know stability, right, for some predictability, but uh, right away, Trump showed himself to be quite unpredictable, if not indeed unstable. And uh, one wrench that was immediately thrown in, one spanner into the works immediately was the phone call with Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, we don't know the specifics of how that was originated just yet. I mean, there's still some controversy over it, but How big of a wrench was that phone call? What was Beijing's reaction to it? What was it like on the ground for you? Did you get summoned to the foreign ministry and and dressed down? So, you know, that phone call sent a tremendous shockwave through the Chinese system. And yes, um, the Chinese were not only livid, um, but I think um, uh, far more importantly, they were deeply, deeply concerned. They saw that potentially here, the, the, the new president very, very quickly was going to um, shake one of the, the core foundations of the U.S.-China relationship. And they were deeply, deeply worried. They communicated through diplomatic channels, as well as, um, it's my understanding, you know, directly through the president-elect channels as well. Not only their concern, but also a very, very clear view to the effect that this crosses a line. China does not want to, to make Taiwan a source of, of true contention within um, the um, U.S.-China relationship. Um, but um, China does not have any room to move on this issue, uh, uh, room to maneuver on this issue. Um, and China will, if necessary, incur costs and incur frictions in the bilateral relationship. They said this, I, I would say, with figuratively with some beads of sweat on their forehead, Kaiser. Sure. <laughs> um, clearly, China was not prepared, did not have an interest uh, to go to the mat with the United States. Um, over Taiwan at that point. But um, I think that there was thinking within the system that they may have to, whatever that going to the mat um, might mean. You know, that wasn't that only point. And then later, the president-elect, I think this was by, um, by this time, this was in January of 2017, in an interview, you know, when someone asked him about the one China policy, and um, I can't remember exactly what he said, so I'll paraphrase him, but he said to the effect, Kaiser, that one China policy, well, you know, I also want things and, you know, um, in the relationship, for example, you know, the trade deficit. And if I don't get what I want, why should I embrace something that the Chinese want? This too sent a tremendous trend of shockwaves um, through the, um, the Chinese system. So when January 20th of 2017 came along, I think there was a tremendous amount of trepidation within the Chinese system. True to his word uh, on the campaign trail, Trump decided to pull the United States out of the Paris climate agreement on his first day in office. That actually sent ripples through the embassy itself in China when Dave Rank, who's, I should say, you know, is a friend of mine, he he resigned. He came back to the United States. Uh, I had actually, just before leaving China in 2016, I had actually had dinner at his home. And uh, this was a gigantic surprise to a lot of us. But uh, we interviewed him on Seneca after he 
came back to the States. Uh, I drove up to Falls Church and had a, a good long interview with him. I'd love to hear how that whole episode of his decision to, to resign from the Foreign Service, how that looked from within the embassy itself. Yeah, obviously, you know, Dave is, um, who's also, by the way, a good, a good personal friend of mine. Dave is an mm-hmm. outstanding diplomat. Um, he was an outstanding yeah. leader. Um, he was an extremely capable manager of, of, of this very, very large embassy in um, Beijing as well. And um, he managed um, and, and led the, uh, the, the, um, the embassy very astutely and very, very effectively in this transition after Max Bacchus left and before Terry Branstead um, had arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was also a, a, a very, very good and respected interlocutor um, with the Chinese. Obviously, that sent um, Dave's decision um, to, to, to step down, sent a tremendous shockwave um, through, the, um, through the embassy. The people were, were, were very, very disappointed. Um, very, very concerned. But, you know, life goes on and the work goes on, right? And um, people are so busy. There is so much coming out of Washington at any given time there in Beijing. There is so much on the Chinese side coming into the embassy that needs to be processed and um, coordinated with Washington that, um, as it were, life goes on. Yeah. We've already used the word shockwave many times. We've had shockwave sent through the Chinese system, shockwave sent through the embassy. Uh, but probably the biggest sort of continuous tremor that was going on was, of course, uh, the trade relationship after the Section 301 tariffs were threatened. What was it like to experience that, the opening salvos of the trade war and, and your Chinese counterpart's reaction to it from the ground in Beijing? How, how did that go? I mean, how much of your life did that end up dominating? Well, you know, I was responsible for the political side of the relationship. So, right. you know, I was not um, directly involved, you know, in the, the day-to-day and the blow-by-blow of the, of the conversations with the Chinese over the, the trade deal and the trade deficit, et cetera. But obviously, those conversations reverberated through the political side of the relationship as well. And I think that when all of this started, I think the Chinese still believed that there was a accommodation uh, to be had. I think that uh, they probably underestimated uh, the president's will and determination on this matter. And I think that they, they thought that by engagement, by conversations, that uh, they could, A, find common ground, um, but also use that engagement and um, use those conversations, right, to wear us down and to dilute the American um, determination on this issue to, to, to lead to an outcome consistent with what um, the Chinese consider to be their interests. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. that didn't happen. And so you saw this, this learning process on the Chinese side. At first, um, they thought, as I said, that you know accommodation could be found. And this extended deep into 2018. I think sure. a good, good example of this was President Trump's visit. This was in November of 2017. The Chinese called it um, a state visit plus meaning yeah. that they not only rolled out the, fig- the, the, the literal but also figurative roll- red carpet and did things that they thought were p- particularly special and particularly unique. Um, they you know, really treated him well in the Forbidden City, That's right. for, for example, uh, showed him some places that people don't normally get access to and et cetera. They thought that by taking this approach – that they could reach these types of understandings with him. Obviously, that was not the, the case. You know, shortly thereafter, I think just a couple of days later, you know, he gave a talk in, or gave a speech in um, Vietnam where he articulated the, um, the basic tenets of what later became the national security strategy, um, which right. was published later in, uh, at the end of that year, um, where we then very, very explicitly, you know, um, uh, characterized China as a strategic competitor and ascribed to China the intention of trying to supplant the United States as the premier power in the region and ultimately in the world. And so I think there was a learning curve, and it was only um, deep into 2018 and subsequent events that the Chinese ultimately came to a majority view, if I can call it that, that um, is you know moving more and more now to a consensus view um, that the United States is trying to contain China, that the United States is trying to thwart China's modernization path, yeah. and that uh, the United States is is trying to challenge Communist Party legitimacy. I think the Chinese truly believe all of these things more and more by now. And a lot of people believe that even before 2017, but the entire process from 2017 until today then um, made that a mainstream majority, if not near um, consensus opinion in China. Yeah, I mean, it would be pretty hard to challenge. uh, And I frankly am completely unsurprised that that view prevails. All the evidence seems to, to support it. 
What was it like for Ambassador Branstad when he arrived in the summer of 2017? Uh, his personal relationship with Xi Jinping, you know, back from his his time in Iowa when Xi, as uh, a vice premier, had gone to Iowa, um, it was marketed as kind of an asset, right? What was it like for him to be there on the ground as the trade war deepened and as tensions mounted? Yeah, that relationship that Ambassador Branstead had was certainly an asset at the very beginning, um, indeed. I mean, it didn't necessarily give him direct access to Xi Jinping. Obviously, you know, they had a very good conversation when the ambassador handed over his credentials. And then subsequently, uh, Xi Jinping invited the ambassador and his family um, to a private dinner with Xi Jinping's wife and daughter there in uh, Jiaoyutai. So there was a certain relationship there. I mean, having said that, he normally conducted the day-to-day business with much lower level officials. However, the fact that within the Chinese perception, um, the Chinese system, there was the perception that Ambassador Branstead had a particularly good and personal relationship um, with Xi Jinping, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. opened all sorts of doors for him. So he got actually pretty good access at the beginning of, of, of his tenure um, in, in Beijing. And, and we use that for a variety of, of issues, including um, you know, making progress on some issues that had been pretty difficult um, to, to, to advance um, um, before that. What were some examples of those? I think the best example of that is the class scheduling of fentanyl. Um, I think a, a uh-huh. lot of people who don't, you know, work the U.S.-China relationship on a, on a regular basis don't understand or don't why this was such a big deal. But, you know, but before this happened, pure fentanyl was coming into the United States through various channels and driving, fueling the, the opiates crisis here. By scheduling fentanyl, and we worked under Ambassador Branstead's leadership for over a year and a half on this issue, what happened is that the, these imports um, of fentanyl into the United States, they plummeted to basically nothing thereafter. And um, it, it was a lot of engagement. Um, Ambassador Branstead was very, very focused. And, and the result spoke for itself. Obviously, you know, precursor mm-hmm. chemicals now um, go through third markets, are processed there to come into the United States. So ultimately, you know, Chinese chemicals are still fueling the opioids crisis in the United States. But a direct and very, very specific threat to public health in the United States was eliminated through this engagement. So that's one of, I, I admit, very, very few examples. But it's, it's a good, it's a good, an excellent example. But um, I just want to point out that you know that, that Ambassador Branstead um, um, uh, was able to leverage the relationship he had with Xi Jinping, not um, to, to meet with Xi Jinping all the time, but then to get access to, to other officials. So he had pretty good access. I would say that as the relationship deteriorated more and more, and as this consensus view within China of what U.S. intentions were took hold, then um, you know his access also suffered. So another major uh, problem, of course, in, in the U.S.-China relationship was over technology. After the ZTE reprieve in July of 2018, I mean, as humiliating as that might have been for Beijing and, and of course, for the company itself, it looked like things might not get so bad on the tech front, briefly. But then the Trump White House really started going after China, and especially its leading technology companies like Huawei, of course. And in December of 2018, of course, Huawei CFO, daughter of Rin Zhengfei, Meng Wanzhou, was, was arrested in Vancouver. How did Beijing react to that arrest in, in, in December of 2018? Yeah, that arrest really hit a raw nerve within Chinese society. Yeah. And, and of course, within uh, the Chinese um, body politic um, as well. Again, this, this turbocharged the view that the United States was trying to contain China. The fact that, again, from a Chinese perspective, the United States went after you know, the daughter of the founder of Huawei, particularly incensed um, the Chinese public. And there was a symbiotic relationship between the propaganda and public opinions that just fed on itself. Um, yeah. over, over this issue. It was virtually impossible um, to get anybody in China to believe that um, the United States did this on the basis of rule of law, that this was you know, an independent legal system having sufficiently compelling evidence to attempt to hold um, a high-level official of a company like Huawei accountable. Nobody in China believed that. Everybody believed, saw it um, through the political prism, through the state of the bilateral relationship, and everybody believed that it was a, um, a political move by the United States. It's hard for any, anyone, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that anyone wouldn't have believed that was so 
it if they had suspicions that it had political hair on it from the beginning they seem to have been really you know confirmed when when trump in a in the interview with reuters basically came right out and said so just basically talked about it as a chip um, that he, he could trade. Well, you know, the president said that subsequently, but we all know that, um, you know, China has a very, very aggressive record of, of trying to acquire, you know, the knowledge and the technology it needs for its own modernization purposes. Um, by sure. any means um, necessary, you know, there, players across the Chinese system are heavily incentivized to go out there. So people have their marching orders. Um, people see benefits um, uh, uh, by going out there and being very, very aggressive. You know, we've seen this over the years in the United States, including by companies like Huawei. So there is a compelling uh, U.S. national interest concern about China's approach to um, technology acquisition. Um, and it, and it's, it poses a you know tremendous conundrum for for all of us about how, on the one hand, you know to to maintain the openness that that ultimately is the source of our strength in the area of high technology, while at the same time protecting ourselves from the very very specific threats um, that China can pose um, through the illegal acquisition of technology. You know, with respect yeah. to Huawei, I don't want to relitigate that case, but, you know, I, I think prosecutors, um, in their view, had a compelling views, right, um, that she intentionally um, deceived banks with respect to um, issues that, that, that then brought them into conflict with U.S. law. So, yes, um, the, the, but, but having said that, I, I, um, in terms of the bilateral relationship, China viewed this very much through a um, political prism. Also, I think that there is a deep concern on the Chinese side Irrespective of the merits of the U.S. case against her, I think there was um, a, a deep fear that you know the United States or other Western countries could use these types of tools to go after Chinese corporate executives or Chinese political leaders. And I think that there is um, deep concern on the Chinese side, and for that reason, they also made the calculation to um, to take action to, uh, as it were, disincentivize countries right um, from trying to follow the U.S. lead. Um, so, you know, taking the two Canadians as diplomatic hostages, and that's what they were, I think reflected this. That was done not only, you know, um, to express outrage about what, what what they saw happen in Canada, not only to put pressure on Canada directly, but also to send a broader signal, yeah, that um, the, the world should be very, very circumspect about, you know, how it deals with um, Chinese traveling, and particularly influential Chinese traveling abroad. Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor were obviously both Canadian citizens, as you said, and therefore not under the charge of the U.S. Embassy, but their detention and their eventual arrest uh, in what was, as you say, it was clearly response to Meng Wanzhou's arrest, that must have provoked a very strong reaction within the American diplomatic community in China, within the embassy. Can you talk about what the U.S. diplomatic corps was able to do on that issue, if anything, and whether that sparked fear in a lot of American business people who were in China and how you, you handled that? Well, yeah. First of all, I think um, there was a lot of concern among um, uh, Americans in China um, that did not enjoy diplomatic um, uh, pr uh, protection, you know, like like I enjoyed and, and my, my fellow diplomats. Um, and um, so we had um, many, many conversations um, with the American community, you know, about this issue, about what, you know, what are the, the specific risks um, that Americans face in China. And then over time, we also, you know, modified some of our travel advisories to try to get a better handle on, on, on what exactly those risks are. Within the embassy um, itself, we were very, very engaged um, with our Chinese, uh, with our Canadian colleagues um, from day one uh, on this issue. We had um, many, many behind the scenes conversations with the Chinese government about the two Canadians. We made it very, very clear that the United States would stand by its Canadian ally when the two Canadians went to court and had court appearances. We stood side by side um, with our Canadian colleagues very, very publicly and, and made public statements. So, you know, from day one until the day that, you know, that they got on that airplane, um, you know, behind the scenes and publicly as much as that was possible, we, to the best of our ability, supported um, our, our Canadian colleagues. We also spent a lot of time talking about this issue um, with Chinese contacts right. as well explaining the background to it, explaining the rationale for the actions, um, explaining the process of extradition and, you know, what that would mean specifically in this case and overall what, what, what this would mean, um, you know, in the hope to, to foster a, a more sophisticated understanding of, of um, what actually transpired. I think given the Chinese perspective and given the mood and given the state of the relationship, we were not very successful in persuading people. Mm -hmm. Were your Chinese uh, counterparts forthright in behind the scenes meetings with them 
about the actual purpose of the detention and, and, and later arrest of the two Michaels? Did they call it what it really was, diplomatic hostage taking? Um, well, first of all, nobody on the Chinese side would ever uh, use that um, issue. But I think overall with this issue, because it was so sensitive, Kaiser, um, because clearly the, this type of decision um, was made at sufficiently senior levels, whatever that might mean, the people were very, very cautious to have honest conversations about this. So um, no, um, I had very few forthright um, behind the scenes conversations about this specific topic. Um, it was possible to have forthright conversations about a variety of topics, I would say, but this was certainly not one of them. So even if, as all of this was progressing, as you know, the, the situation with ZTA and then with Huawei and other technology companies, even as the trade war was getting started at the end of 2017, the first reports of large-scale construction of internment camps, what Beijing was terming re-education camps, started to come in. Uh, in the next few months, more evidence seemed to confirm that large-scale extra-legal detentions of Uyghurs and Kazakhs were happening throughout Xinjiang. Uh, at what point did the U.S. embassy start raising concerns about this in Beijing? Uh, I mean, we've all read and I've heard you know many insider accounts about how President Trump himself signaled at best indifference, at worst maybe even support on this issue. That is to say, you know, he, he said those people should be put in camps, as, as Nancy Pelosi said. Uh, those Muslims should be put in camps, as, as uh, she, she is quoted as having said. Late into his presidency, um, eventually, of course, Mike Pompeo elevated the Xinjiang camps. Uh, but it was never something that Trump talked about, uh, even as he went after China on just a host of, of, of other things. What was the embassy doing on, on the issue of camps in Xinjiang during that time? Yeah, as these um, um, you know, reports um, started to come in about what was happening out there, I, I think at first there was a bit of, I wouldn't say not surprise. Um, you know, this was f fully consistent, you know, with what the Chinese um, had been doing in, um, in, in Tibet, for example. You know, um, the, the party secretary had just, um, at this time, had just, you know, uh, transferred uh, from Tibet um, to uh, Xinjiang. We sent a lot of people out there. You know, it's um, at that time it was pretty easy just to go on to sea trip and you know book a flight in a hotel in Xinjiang, <laughs> and then you know you just walk around. Sometimes our, our colleagues would be uh, visited in their in their hotel, you know, by um, uh, cheerful people, um, you know, just looking after them. Sometimes they would be followed, <laughs> um, but overall, at, in the beginning at least, it was possible to go out there and to observe the, the creation of the the system. Right. Right. Particularly, you know, the, everything that was present on the streets, you know, the, 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 the police checkpoints, you know, the, the, the massive public security presence um, that was uh, that was everywhere, et cetera. The um, mosques, for example, you know, um, closing down, people being far more cautious and our diplomats are trying to chat them up, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, everything that, you know, guys like Adrian Zenz and others were, were reporting about Xinjiang. It was very, very consistent with the observations um, that we made in our trips out there. Many other representatives of the diplomatic community went out there and, you know, we would compare notes uh, about these things. And um, so I think that by early 2018, we were all getting um, a, a pretty, pretty clear picture of, um, mm -hmm. of the scope of, of what the Chinese were doing out there. And it, it was pretty, pretty, pretty horrific. Was it frustrating to you, though, that this wasn't reaching the desk of the president or if it was, it was going completely ignored? Well, you know, let me put it this way, Kaiser. You know, we we report about what is you know what is going on, and you know th there were a, a series of steps taken uh, against uh, individuals. You know, sanctions, visa uh, visa issues. Um, you know, Much in the course later, of two thousand eighteen, you know. Um, um, onwards. And then, you know, um, uh, to the point where, you know, we did see um, uh, later a whole variety of steps um, uh, being taken in response to this. Right. At which point, though, those looked like just sort of the weaponization of an issue that we'd known about for a long time to serve other purposes. But uh, it was uh, very unfortunate. In any case, uh, we, let's, let's, let's move on from that. Um, there is so much more that we could talk about with respect to the unfolding of the trade war. I understand that you were on the political desk and this wasn't you know, directly your bailiwick, but I think that you know many of us were at least a little hopeful that when the phase one deal was struck uh, in January 2020, things would calm down a bit, but no such luck. What was it like? Obviously, you know, uh, the, the, another major issue came up, uh, the one that we're still dealing with today. 
what was it like being at the embassy in the early days after this novel coronavirus was reported in Wuhan? Uh, what role did the embassy play in providing information to our government? And, and, and how did your own sense of the danger develop over time in these early months of 2020? Yeah. So, you know, the first reports we got about, you know, some sort of SARS-like virus circulating in um, Wuhan, you know, we got those at the end of December in 2019. And then, you know, subsequently, day by day, you know, we got more and more reports. It was very, very difficult to get any sort of information um, from the Chinese government. We saw that uh, channels of communication that we had between our public health officials um, became, basically, they, they, they dried up the more that this crisis began to unfold. And um, I, I think it came as a surprise when we all woke up, I believe it was on the 23rd of January to read that, you know, they'd actually shut down Wuhan. But by that time, we were already having conversations um, with our staff there. You know, we have a small um, consulate there in Wuhan and, um, you know, whether we should keep our people there or not. Already be- before the shutdown, it was clear that the, uh, the medical system there was being overrun that uh, health providers were being very, very explicit to us and telling us that, you know, don't come to me with this or that um, because I don't have the capacity to, um, to support you on any of these things. Mm. So, you know, it became very, very clear to us um, very, very soon that we had to, um, get, that was in our interest to get our people out of there and then um, right. to work to get, um, uh, offer American citizens um, an, um, an opportunity to leave if they, if they wanted to. So, you know, we had a, a whole of government effort that, first of all, you know, evacuated um, our entire staff from uh, Wuhan. Um, and then um, uh, at the same time, and then subsequently, we evacuated um, over 800 American citizens um, and dependents over the course of about a 10-day period. The, um, it, was, it, was, it was a fascinating example um, to see the Chinese um, system in um, uh, you know, in, in, in action at this time. Sure. I think that, that this initially overwhelmed um, the Chinese system. I sensed a confusion and a vulnerability on the Chinese side that I personally, in my engagement um, with the Chinese um, um, to that point, had not experienced um, Kaiser. Right. And th- they were clearly um, very, very worried about what was happening and what was going on. The fact that they accommodated our, our desire and that of other countries to get their nationals out of Wuhan as quickly as possible shows that they, they wanted foreigners out because they didn't want to have to deal with them and they didn't want to you know, have to deal with, um, you know, with the consequences of foreigners getting sick um, while the, 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 the entire public health system was, was completely overrun. Right. Right, right. But of course, in, in the ensuing months, after Beijing's initial mishandling, its lack of transparency and all these things very much changed, right? And the the view from China uh, was of a relatively competent Chinese handling of the crisis. And if you look, you know, today official numbers are still under six thousand deaths, uh, and you, you know we're we're at over eight hundred and seventy thousand deaths in the United States right now. So watching that switch, what what did that feel like? Uh, on the ground there in Beijing? Well, first of all, I, I think an inflection point came um, with the death of uh, 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 Dr. Li uh, Wenliang. Li Wenliang, yeah. You know, there was a tremendous, um, tremendous outrage um, in, in China, a tremendous, tremendous response to that. I think that caught um, the leadership um, and the, the, the party state system by surprise. And mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That led to two things um, politically. Um, the first thing is um, they um, focused responsibility domestically, um, you know, on the leadership there in, in, in Hubei province. So they basically had had um, you know to to, um, uh, to take a dive um, for that. And then secondly, um, very very astutely, they channeled responsibility from China to the outside world. You know, these outrageous claims that U.S. soldiers brought the virus into Wuhan, for example, was part of a of, of a um, broader campaign to diffuse responsibility for this virus, and most importantly, to to remove in the eyes of the Chinese public responsibility for the virus from the central leadership away from it and um, to the outside world. Um, to the and, point- you know, the United States seems to have picked up that exact same playbook or t- taken a page from that uh, with its efforts to sort of deflect responsibility. I'm, I'm wondering what it was like then for you in, in Beijing to watch uh, as we enter the summer of 2020 
And as as Trump, it seemed at least to me to seem to pull out all the stops and 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 pursue this full court press against China. What was morale like inside the U.S. embassy when he started using gratuitous, insulting language uh, directly from the presidential bully pulpit, talking about you know the the Wuhan flu or the Wuhan virus or the China virus? I mean, that must have crippled your own efforts to some extent. I I, I imagine it must have been hard. To square. Well, a couple of things. First of all, you know, the Chinese response, deflecting responsibility to the outside world, that obviously was facilitated by the rapid spread of the virus outside of China. Um, that was also facilitated um, by the U.S. response, um, uh, the initial U.S. response um, to the virus, um, you know, the consequences of which, you know, we all experienced to the point where I think um, a majority of people in China, um, certainly a majority of people in Wuhan to this day, probably believe um, that the virus indeed originated outside of the United States. Fort Detrick. <laughs> for, for, for example. Also, you know, from a, from a broader perspective, what is particularly worrying and particularly damaging um, about this Chinese approach is that um, by directing any sort of responsibility away from China um, for political reasons, China um, has no interest in allowing you know its experts to have an honest conversation with you know the experts uh, you know from from the outside world about the origins of the virus. So you know we're we're in a very very frustrating uh, situation that um, trying to have the, the you know, reach an understanding about ultimately where this virus came from um, is, is going to be next to impossible. Um, you know given um, you know the the, the, the Chinese. Um, um, priorities um, and and decisions to um, you know to to, to uh, let's say direct any sort of conversation within China um, um, about the well, you don't think that the, virus. A, the American sort of a priori assumption that this is entirely China's fault and that you know uh, this this clear kind of deliberate uh, intent to to place the blame squarely on China. That certainly didn't encourage Chinese cooperation now, did it? I mean, in what kind of world do you imagine that China is going to say, yeah, you know, so after all of that, after all all of the uh, the efforts to to blame China, we're going to just throw open our doors and let your inspectors come to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I mean, I don't think that, you know, you're a diplomat. You understand that that's not how things work, right? Yeah, um, uh, of course. You know that that approach um, that uh, the Trump administration took, uh, obviously, um, uh, or added fuel to the fire and only reinforced um, pre-existing views within China, um, you know, about the origin of the virus and about U.S. intentions towards China. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, give us a sense, though, for what it felt like. I mean, I mean, I, I think that when you talk about this idea that the United States uh, is hell-bent on keeping China down, on kneecapping its tech companies, on preventing it from, you know, it's just, just driving China onto its belly. In, in every way possible, that if if it were that there were a moment in which it, that that view solidified and became consensus in China, that must have been the summer of 2020. During that period of sort of pulling out all the stops, um, how how was that experienced for people in the U.S. Embassy in Beijing during that summer? Yeah, I think within the um, you know the Chinese um, Party um, state system. That what really solidified this, I would call it near consensus view about U.S. intentions, um, was the decision to close the um, Chinese consulate in Houston. And, um, um, you know, multiple people in the Chinese system told me that, that, that any sort of doubters, you know, within the Chinese system about U.S. intentions ultimately, you know, uh, changed their minds um, after, um, a- after that decision. Yeah. You know, with, res- the, the, with respect to how Chinese people view the United States, and the intentions they ascribe to the United States with respect to China, you know, we we had just you know um, ongoing conversations um, with people across Chinese society about this, and um, it was quite interesting Chinese perspectives on this. Um, Kaiser, you know, they basically you know there was one of three views about you know why the United States was doing what it was. You know, the first is um, a the United States is afraid of China's growing power. Um, the United States is, you know, afraid of, you know, a peer competitor emerging. The second one was that, um, you know, the Trump administration, you know, for domestic political reasons, was trying to just divert um, responsibility, you know, for its own mm-hmm. governance failures um, and for, you know, all of the chaos in the United States. This is not me speaking. This is me trying to paraphrase 
Chinese thought. Sure, sure. And the third view is that ideologues from the uh, you know uh, anti-communist um, tradition, anti-Chinese tradition in the United States, had hijacked um, the bilateral relationship. So. Th- one or three of these views or combinations thereof, I think, um, informed most people's views about U.S. intentions towards China. We would try to have conversations and try to point out that, listen, um, very, very specific decisions that China made for its own interests um, were having a, in, a, a growing impact on U.S. interests, a growing impact um, on U.S. security and that of our friends and allies, and that we have articulated we, through engagement over the years um, our concerns about these issues. As China's uh, power grew, um, the impact of these decisions um, on our interests and security um, grew as well, that we had failed through the um, traditional methods of engagement to reach a accommodation or an understanding um, with China. And for that reason, we um, took this far more assertive approach. So this is the type of conversation that we tried to have about the U.S. intentions. Very, very difficult to get people to, to understand that. Um, some people, getting back to that point we just mentioned or earlier mentioned, um, Kaiser, some people it was possible to have a forthright conversation about these things. And they would say, listen, Bill, we get it. We know it, but we can't admit it. We can't admit that anything that we do, you know, could be responsible for any problems that China encounters out there for, for domestic sure. political purposes. I think far more, far broad, more broadly in China's, um, China, however, th- th- um, th- there is a view that what we Chinese doing what we're going to do is impact America. America is much bigger. America is still much stronger, uh, much more powerful than China. How can the decisions that we make influence and impact the United States to such an extent that the U.S. would resort to these measures against China. So many people thought that that type of argument that I would try to make uh, was was disingenuous. Hmm. And so, you know, that was a big challenge, um, uh, trying to have those conversations um, and, 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 and to facilitate a understanding about the intentions of the United States and frankly, uh, you know, uh, other countries as well about how the decisions that China is making is impacting our security and, and, and our interests. Bill, you were still acting DCM in Beijing during the transition uh, and for the first six months of the Biden presidency. Give our listeners a sense for Beijing's emotional trajectory, as it were, during that time. I mean, conventional wisdom says there were pretty high hopes that Biden would be looking to lower the temperature, if not indeed just offer an olive branch, and that things would get back on track. And there was a lot of disappointment when things did not appear to at all. And What we're seeing now is um, Jeff Bader wrote a piece called it sort of Trump light. Other people have described it as Trump with allies. There is a, a, a number of different views within the Chinese system after President Biden won the election. Um, it took a while, by the way, for the Chinese to to wrap their heads around the fact that um, Joe Biden actually won. You know, obviously, <laughs> the, you know, the, the President Trump's um, refusal to, to, to concede really, really um, confused um, a lot of Chinese policymakers. Yeah, it seems to have confused a lot of Americans. <laughs> what, what exactly was happening. But... Um, you know, I think when when the contours of the President Biden's China team started to emerge, in some circles in China, there was indeed hope that this could mean the two sides could return to the status quo ante 2017. Why? Because so many of these people, you know, had worked the U.S.-China relationship in the Obama administration. So there was, right. within the Chinese system, there was some hope, right, for a return to the status quo ante. I think that a more sober view, right, um, that there was going to be no return and that uh, overall views in the United States towards China had evolved. I think that view was the majority view. So I think, Hmm. yes, there was hope. But at the same time, I think that China by this time was extremely guarded in its expectations for the relationship. I suppose that's good. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, a, a more realistic appraisal of, of how things had actually evolved. They weren't going to be able to put Humpty Dumpty together again. Bill, um, before we wrap up here, what do you see as the biggest fundamental questions confronting the American foreign policy community when it comes to China? And where do you fall on those? I mean, I would suggest, for instance, that, that some of the really big ones include, well, can the United States accept a diminished role for itself in the world where it is no longer the sole superpower in, you know, in a monopolar order? And when it comes to policy toward China, more specifically, the question seems to be all about just right-sizing Beijing's actual ambitions. I mean, does it intend to supplant or, or replace the United States as a global hegemon or 
are its ambitions more sort of regionally constrained? I mean, is it just looking for regional dominance? Because I feel like, you know, the basic contest within American foreign policy right now seems very much to reflect the different answers to those basic questions. What, what, are, what are they for you and where do you fall? Yeah, you know, with respect to China's intentions in the world and with respect to the United States, um, you know, I understand the logic um, of people, you know, who try to make very compelling um, intellectual arguments that China does intend to supplant um, the United States on the world stage. I understand um, how they connect dots and come to those conclusions. I, I would also make the point that it's, uh, you can take those same data points perhaps use other data points and come to somewhat different conclusions, right? So I, I, I am far less self-confident in my view of what ultimately Chinese intentions in the world are. I think, however, that as China's national power grows, China will continue to project its power around the world to advance its interests so that U.S. and Chinese interests um, will continue to bump up against each other and that we will continue to have deep friction in the bilateral relationship. Yeah, that's not really in question, though, right? But, <laughs> I yeah, know that. but, 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 but I, I do, what I do want to say is that um, when U.S. and Chinese interests um, uh, meet uh, in the world, um, whether in the bilateral relationship or on in third countries, they don't necessarily have to be adversarial. They don't, it's not necessarily a zero sum. This is a, a very, very specific and a very, very new challenge that we as Americans are facing. And so I think that we need a, a, a very, very differentiated um, view about what China does in the world, what we, what we can live with, what we have to live with, for the simple reason that neither we nor others have the ability to change um, Chinese behavior in, in, in certain areas. And then um, in what areas um, do we have to very, very um, forcefully and self-confidently you know, defend our interests and push back against the Chinese? I think that for me, the, the core problem, Kaiser, is that ultimately the United States and China have to be very, very honest about the deep strategic mistrust at the heart of the relationship yes, and, and yes. then find ways find ways um, to acknowledge um, the sources of those mistrust, to make it very, very clear where our red lines are um, on any number of issues um, um, with respect to strategic mistrust, and then find ways uh, to ensure that space exists between our red lines, and then also to develop mechanisms um, to manage um, that competition when those red lines start to get very, very close or when they, when they touch each other or overlap. Right. This is not only going to take a lot of very serious and labor-intensive diplomacy, but it's also going to take a lot of national determination and, and, and a lot of leadership as well. We are going to have, in, in order to compete successfully with China, um, we are going to have to um, play to our strengths. You know, our strengths are our openness. Our strengths are our rule of law. Um, our strengths are our freedom and our innovative capacity, our dynamicism and the flexibility and openness of our system. We need to play to those strengths. Um, we need to make those strengths, um, you know, core principles of what we want in the world. And then we have to con uh, continue to 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 fight to advance those strengths and protect those strengths. Um, when we do that, um, you know, um, others uh, others will follow us. Not always um, in, in lockstep. Not always completely. But I am convinced in a manner um, such that taken together, that where necessary, the United States um, can counterbalance the growth of, of, of Chinese power and counterbalance there um, where it has an adverse impact on our security and our interests. That's a long-winded way of saying that this is a very, very unique challenge that is not going to require us you know, to, be, to deploy the forces of American power uh, as necessary, but also through um, very, very intense and astute diplomacy with China. Here's to that. I mean, I, I really hope that we'll continue to see seasoned diplomats like yourself really attending to this vital, vital question. So, Bill, I mentioned at the outset that you had been posted to Kiev twice, uh, actually, and, and though that was much earlier in your diplomatic career, I wonder whether you might have some thoughts on the current situation and how Beijing specifically might be looking at this looming security dilemma. Yeah, you know, I, I, indeed, I served twice in Kiev. I do have to say, however, that my knowledge of what's going on in Kiev is fairly dated. I left Kiev for the second time in the summer of 2009. So I missed, you know, the whole Maidan revolution in 2014, um, right. uh, you know, the, the, the Russian occupation of Vanyetsk and Luhansk um, and, and, and the Crimea. So, so like I say, my, my, my views are, are somewhat dated. 
Having said that, I think the, the, the challenge we face is, can a Russia ultimately accept the existence of a stable, prosperous, and democratic Ukraine on its direct borders. That, I think, is ultimately the big question. The question is, of course, can Ukraine, you know, out of its own, out of its own strength and um, with the support of the West, you know, become um, stable, prosperous, and democratic and, and open? But, but the bottom line is, can Russia or can Vladimir Putin and his regime ultimately accept that? Um, that's a big, big question. With respect, you, think you it, know, it's ultimately about NATO membership at all. Then you think that it's just simply that that uh, right now Putin would not accept the existence of a a genuinely independent Ukraine that was all those things prosperous and stable. You know that's a big question. I think yes. Um, you know he's he, he's he's been very explicit about you know what he wants with respect to um, NATO and security guarantees. Um, but beyond that, um, um, you know I think one can make the case that from a Russian perspective. That type of Ukraine um, could could pose for a regime like Vladimir Putin's a unacceptable threat. I don't know. I may be wrong there. That was my perception. I admire the way that you're always looking for that cognitive empathy. You're you're always trying to put yourself into the shoes of Beijing or in the shoes of Moscow or or whatever counterparty we're talking about. I think that's the, the, the most basic fundamental skill that any diplomat should have. Yeah. Thank you. I, I just want to emphasize that as I try to characterize what I experienced, um, um, with respect to the perspectives of others, I just want to emphasize that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily sympathetic to those views or that, that I agree. No, of course with them. not. Yeah. No, no. I think that, that you, we need to know the difference. And then it's the great thing about exercising cognitive empathy. Although, you know, people do sometimes get confused and we shouldn't have to be explicit when we do this, but, you know, we, we can sort of hang our own values up at the, at the coat check and then put them back on again once we step out from behind those other set of eyes, right? Uh, it's a useful skill. Uh, Bill Klein, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, let's move on now to recommendations. But first, let me remind everybody that uh, if you like the work that we're doing with the Cynical Podcast or with other shows in the network, the best thing that you can do to support us is to subscribe to SubChina Access, our daily email newsletter. It's a fantastic motherload of, of stories on China uh, that are you know, that are, are curated from all over the web, from hundreds of different news sources. So check it out. And really, that is the way that, that, that uh, you can keep the lights on for us. All right, let's move on to recommendations. Bill, what do you have for us? Yeah, um, you know, I've noticed over the years that um, you have a lot of science fiction fans um, on your show, oh, Kaiser. Yeah, we do, sure. um, so I just wanted to recommend um, the last science fiction book that I read. That is Project Hail Mary by um, Andy Weir. Um, he's best mm. known um, for the book The Martian and the film that starred Matt Damon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Project Hail Mary um, came out last year. Um, it's fantastic, hard science fiction. Um, basically, um, something horrific is going to happen to Earth, and um, mankind determines that the solution to this may be in a nearby star. Um, um, mankind has the, the, the technology and the know-how to get to that star and then to communicate back to Earth um, uh, why that one star is, is, is um um, has a solution to the problems um, uh, that mankind is, is encountering, but it doesn't have the technology to bring the crew back. So it's a hail mary. They ship, uh, they <laughs> send um, a, 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 a crew of three to this um, um, star to find find out. So first of all, I love the book because um, lots of really really good hard hard science, astrophysics, Newtonian physics, relativity biology, chemistry, all of that's great, and um, uh, uh, executed in a manner that um, uh, li- um, you know, uh, amateurs like myself can understand. Secondly, um, there's a very, very interesting um, encounter um, with a being, uh, a being from another planet. I don't want to spoil the plot, um, but um, it's just fascinating how he characterizes um, the engagement uh, between uh, the, 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 the protagonist and um, this, uh, this creature. Alpha Centauri is only 4.3 light years away. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. And then finally, um, it's, it's very well written. Um, you know, there's lots of plot twists. Um, it's written with a, a certain amount of humor and, and um, uh, you know, sarcasm and self-deprecation. It reminds me a lot of the science fiction um, stuff I used to read from Robert Heinlein and others when I was a kid. So that's my recommendation, uh, guys. The, the old stuff, the good stuff. Fantastic. I, yeah, I, I'm, I've, I'm always looking for another good sci-fi book to plunge into. It's been a while. Now that season six of The Expanse is over, I, I need some kind of a sci-fi fix. I love that show immoderately. <laughs> All right. Uh, good book to recommend. So for my recommendation, uh, and this does, does touch on science fiction as well, 
I want to recommend an online course that's been put together by Christopher Ray, who has been on the show before. He's a fantastic literary scholar, uh, scholar of Chinese literature, ancient and modern. Uh, he's done the Modern Chinese Novel, an online course. It's 20 videos, and it's brand new. It just went up a couple of days ago. These are short 10 to 15 minute long videos on YouTube, and uh, they cover a huge range of, of literature in, in modern China. And they start off with, with Liu Cixin and Chinese science fiction, uh, three, four parts on, on that. And then uh, writers from Taiwan, from the mainland, uh, writers like Mo Yan, uh, Yu Hua, uh, people like that. And I, I, I imagine it's going to continue. It's a fantastic course. I, I highly Chris has a great presentation style. He makes it super accessible. And, of course, you come away with a, a, a pretty good knowledge of, of uh, what's happening in, in, in literature. I think this is a recommendation that pairs very nicely with last week's show with Megan Walsh. Thanks, Bill. That was fantastic. I really enjoyed talking to you about all this. I'm walking down memory lane. And I'm sure there, there's, you know, we'll, we'll have you back on again and, uh, and getting even you know, more detail about some of these episodes. But this was a, a great overview, a good table of content. Really enjoyed it. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com or just as good, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News and make sure to check out all the shows Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.